Welcome to the Macro Setup. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. It is Tuesday, February 23rd. This Macro Setup brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads. And Dan, help me out here. Knockouts, my man. Uh, you know, there was, there was no enthusiasm. Knockouts. You're damn straight knockouts. And Dan, <laughs> I'm all fired up, as you can tell. Look, we're taping this in the... Um, late morning on this Tuesday, and Jerome Powell's up there speaking, and he's obviously assuaged some of the concerns for the broader market, and it's trough today. I think the Dow was down some 450 points. The Nasdaq was getting obliterated. Things have come back. By the way, the VIX, which we'll obviously talk about in a little while, traded north of 27 at one point today. We'll see how that winds up. But all this is on concerns that we've been talking about for a while, Dan, and you know the market seems a bit skittish here. I'm just curious as to your thoughts as we head into this trading day? Well, you've been talking about rates and the, and the rise, obviously off of a very low base, but your point has been the trajectory has been very clear. You know, we, we bottomed out in August at 50 bips. And as we've gotten greater confidence um, about our ability to deal with the uh, virus, and obviously the vaccine rollout has been um, going pretty well, I think near term. So that plus the, uh, the potential for fiscal stimulus, which is gonna be voted on this week, I think investors are thinking, okay, we're gonna have a better economy in the back half of this year. And that's why why stocks were rocking and rolling um, the way they were. And that's why rates were rising the way they were. And I think the point that you've been making uh, very cogently over the last couple months or so is that be careful. The Fed has told you they're going to let inflation run hot. That's been great for risk assets for a while, but at some point, that's going to work its way into corporate earnings. And that could be the very thing where investors start thinking a little bit about equity valuations. And that might be what we've had over the last week, a rethink of equity valuations and a rotation into more cyclicals. And even today, Guy, when you mentioned you know, the NASDAQ was getting killed and the Dow was down. You know what was up on the day? JP Morgan. You know what was also up? Some energy stocks. So we're seeing you know, that continued rotation out of growth into cyclicals. Yeah. And that's fine. And hopefully, listen, I think that's a healthy sign, by the way. The problem, yeah. as you know, it's just the rotation is out of things, you know, that are some 30, 35% of the broader market into things that, that, that can make up a very small portion of the broader market. So by definition, despite the fact that we're going to have this rotation, the market's going to suffer on the back of that, in my opinion. We're going to get into that. But, you know, again, the fact that the Fed could somehow thinks, you know, by saying they let inflation run hot for an extended period of time, embedded in that comment is the fact that they somehow think it's going to be under control along that period of time. It's not. And I think we're going to look back to those um, retail sales numbers, the PPI numbers that we got a week or so ago and sort of benchmark that and put, a, put one of those uh, tabs on it to look back in history and say, this was sort of the beginning of the end. They've, I, in my opinion, you know, they think they can control something that they have no control over and they better hope that inflation stops at 3% because I think it's going to run well north of that. And again, we're going to talk about 10-year yields and what they mean. But in the, in the context of things, all this, everything you just talked about is part of the same conversation. The fact that the vaccines are rolling out at a, at a good pace, we seem to be under control. A lot of people think that you're going to have mass vaccinations or, or, or um, herd immunity Reaching by herd some immunity. Time I mean, listen, over I, the I, next I, few months. I mean, that's all great news, by the way. It might be great for us, might be great for the economy, but I think it could be devastating for the stock market. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the kind of that age-old market saying is buy the rumors, sell the news. And that's what we might be seeing here. And we have a, numerous examples in today's um, discussion, at least through the charts that we're going to walk through right here. Let's look at the S&P 500. Um, you know, it had been making a very, very orderly series of kind of higher highs and higher lows, a really nice uptrend. Look at that one-year chart, or at least since the start of January 2020. Um, that yellow line is the 150-day moving average. Shout out to our main man, Carter Braxton Worth. He likes to use that mm -hmm. as his smoothing mechanism. But I draw that horizontal line guy from that September uh, 2nd high there. And you look at that 150 day and you look at that, what is now support prior resistance and you get about 3,600, 3,500, 3,600 or so, which would be a break of that uptrend that's been in place since uh, November. And I think it's really interesting that, that November, you see that little blip above that prior high. That was the day that vaccine came out on November 9th with the news about, um, or Vi Pfizer came out with the news about the vaccine. So, you know, that would be a very logical le uh, uh, level. I mean, if we're going to see a sort of sell the news in the S&P 500, especially if we're seeing a rotation into smaller cap names, um, which we have seen the app performance in the Russell, we're going to get to that. And we are going to see a heavier, um, you know, we're going to see the mega cap names in tech in particular heavy. We're going to hit those charts too. Yeah, I think this chart I mean, speaks to exactly what we've been talking about for a while. The 150-day moving average lines up with the levels that you just outlined. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. And people say, oh, my God, there's no way it's going to trade down there. I mean, it can do that. We've seen it before. I mean, that could be done over the course of a week to 10 days in terms of market trading days. It's not uncommon to see the market take the stairs up and the elevator down. And I do believe we're on the precipice of that. With that said, I've thought that for a while. And by the way, I don't think that the old prior highs of back in February, when we traded up to 33.93 all the way at the beginning of this chart. I don't think that that's out of the question necessarily if things sort of Whoa. play out the way I think. So you should be looking at the levels that Dan just showed you in the form of the 150-day moving average at 35.50 level coincides with that September-ish high. I think that makes sense for a lot of different reasons. And you can do the math, Dan. That's probably a 10% or so move from where we are right now. Yeah, and it makes sense. Listen, the S&P is still up on the year, right? And the, I think it was only down on the year was the first trading day of the year. That's not generally how markets go. And you can say to me, oh, well, you know, we're going to have this real easy monetary policy. We're going to have nearly $2 trillion in added fiscal stimulus. We might have an infrastructure bill. That is a lot of liquidity sloshing around, and there's very few places for it to go, um, especially, you know, kind of where the yields are, that sort of thing, um, in the fixed income market. So to me, you know, yes, I understand that the the whole Tina thing. There is no alternative. But let's go to the NDX, uh, the, the Nasdaq oh, 100 oh, guy. You just that I you hate. Just said, I hate that Tina. That Yolo. I oh know, my! What, what does that well, Yolo thing mean? You, well, only, you live only live once. once. Like, those are oh. those are two those are two very different things. Um, but I want. Yeah, but I it's make, all part of the same thing. It's it's asinine. I don't mean that you're asinine. I just think, well, no. But anyway, I, just, all right. Do so you want to break it down for a second? Tina really is that is an institutional thing that you know institutions no, I that know. Have to make a return. There is no alternative when rates are this low, the YOLO thing is this Reddit crowd basically saying, go all in on one stupid meme stock. You only live once if it doesn't go up and it goes to zero. You know, that, So to me, they're two very different things. Let's go to the NASDAQ though, because you just said something you see, very I'm all, You to see, me. I'm all geeked up today. You know that you can see it in me that I'm I so can... exercised today by what's going on and what's been going on over the last week. 
And so, so I'm sorry for my energy, folks. But this is Dan. Speak to the to the Nasdaq chart because I, I, I want to jump if, in if, as well. I would. You're no, I'm caffeinated at the moment here. But you said something interesting about the S and P 500. You said you could see risk down to that 3393, which was the February 2020 highs before the market crapped out during the kind of throes of that pandemic. Uh, you know, really the initial throes of it when people were really unsure. And I think what's really interesting about that is like, look at this Nasdaq chart, this Nasdaq 100 chart. We are literally 45% above the year ago levels, 45% before they topped out, right? So, so it just shows you the level of outperformance there. You look at that chart, we draw that horizontal line back to that September 2nd high. It took at least three months to get back up and make a new high. I look at that 150-day moving average around 12,000. You know, we caught um, you know a rally this morning, bounced off of some lows. The market maybe was near-term oversold. And I think you're probably going to say, Guy, that you, know, you see some support back towards those December lows between the 150 day and that breakout level from September. That's, exa that's exactly right. That is where the ultimate support is. And oh, by the way, if it were to trade down there, we say it over and over again, that's not devastating. We're still yeah. in a basically 11 month uptrend from that March low, which is quickly going to be a year uptrend. So it's not the end of the world, folks, but so much of this specifically, so much of this NASDAQ trade has been predicated on low rates. And again, Dan mentioned it, with 10-year yields going from 53 basis points in August to almost 1.4% now, I understand that rates are still historically low by any measure you want to look at. But the rate in which we've moved and, and the, the, the speed with which we moved to me is alarming. And I don't think we're stopping here. So again, so much of this trade has been predicated on it. When you take that peg out of it, you wonder what's going to happen. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to test that 150-day moving average, which basically comes in at 12,000, Dan. Yeah, as a trader, man, I'll just tell you, let's move over to the Russell 2000, the small caps, because this is one we've been talking about now on the macro setup for the last few weeks a, a lot because of the outperformance. Look at that one-year chart since the start of 2020. You see that breakout in November, um, and it's just been – it looks parabolic. I mean, look at that trend Epic. line. I think – yeah, I think we call this the hungry alligator chart when you look at the um, you know the breakout level um, and then you look at that uptrend, you get a nice little chomper there. And then, I don't know, do alligators have tongues, Guy? Because that 200-day that or that 150-day moving average at 1777, that looks like a little alligator tongue. But to me, man, yeah. oof, if this one closes below that uptrend that has been in place since early November, where do you see this thing going, Guy? Do you see it below 2,000 kind of testing the early G? Jan Lowe's when it was kind of down on the year for about like a day? Well, there's an old saying, Katie, bar the door. And I don't know who Katie is, and I don't know what door <laughs> she needs to bar, but Katie, bar the door if this thing were to close below that trend line. And this, the Russell, obviously, in a lot of ways, is an overlay of rates. And it makes sense. I mean, these are the most economically sensitive names. So if rates are going higher because there's this, this belief that the economy is getting better, it stands to reason that the Russell is going to outperform. And that's exactly right. But at a certain point, these things start to decouple. And I think you're starting to see that now. I happen to believe rates can continue to go higher. And that's going to be at this point to the detriment of the Russell. This is where you get that points of diminishing marginal returns for those who took the economics in college. I took it for a day and I learned that. So I think we're right on the precipice of that. But to Dan's point, you know, close a two, day or two below this trend line. And I got to tell you something, it sounds preposterous, but that horizontal line or that 150-day moving average of about 1780 or so 
is absolutely in the crosshairs. And again, you'll say, how can that possibly happen? Well, we've seen it before. Again, stairs up, elevator down, and you will see a decoupling of the Russell from yields. And I think we're really close to it. I think it's going to come. The inflection point for me, Dan, is 1.5% in the 10-year. And we'll see what happens if and when we get there. All right. So that's a really, really important point about small cap stocks here. You know, these are companies that obviously were hard hit on the downside. I mean, one of the reasons has to do with the fact they're smaller, their access to capital is different, their cost of capital is different. So if rate rising and their ability to access capital becomes more expensive or service existing debt, that's the point. So right now they have been in a sentiment driven euphoria. But to Guy's point, you know, when you have that sort of outperformance, you're likely to see some sort of reversion here. So that would be one that could be triggered by a rise in rates. Guy, let's go to the two-year chart of the VIX here. You know, you, we had a discussion. I can't remember. Maybe it was on Fast Money yesterday or with somebody um, personally. Uh, oh, no, it was with uh, Bono and Eisen on the tape, our podcast. Check it out, people in the podcast stores. Um, but we were talking about the VIX, and we we're saying that a year ago or in January and early February 2020, we were talking about the VIX as an early teenager and, and thinking about, man, can it go back and retest those lows near 10 or so. Well, here we are. You look at that breakout um, from February 2020. Obviously, those levels were a bit extreme, you know, in the 80s very briefly, but it has held that breakout level of 20, you know, really since the market has taken off and since, you know, fiscal and monetary policy have gotten easy and stayed easy. What's your take on the VIX? How are you using this as an input as, as far as, you, you know, your thoughts on um, where equity markets could go near term? So we've been doing the macro setup since October, if memory serves, Dan. I think that's correct. I yeah. think you'll back me up on that. And I, I know we have you. been steadfast in this that every time, and we have said this, every time we said the VIX is traded down to 21, 21 and a half, that's marked a short-term bottom in the VIX and a short-term top in the broader markets. And I got to tell you something, um, I'm wrong all the time, but this one we got right, Dan. And each time you've seen a spike in the VIX and a short-term self in the market, hey, we're living one now. We're in the midst of one seemingly now. The VIX, I think, closed actually below 20 last week. I want to say 19 and change. But at one point today, and today, obviously, we're, we, as I mentioned, we're taping this in the late morning of Tuesday. It traded north of 27. Again, yeah. on a rather benign, and I say benign because although you know 400 points in the Dow seems like a lot, you know, when you're talking about 30,000 Dow or so, it's really not all that much. So my point is this. How do I use it? I use it as an indicator. If when these things, when the VIX trades down to that 21 level, I say to myself, over the next couple of days, we're going to see a meaningful sell-off in the market. We're going to see a spike in the VIX. And that continues to take place. I do think the VIX is headed back to somewhere between 35 and 40. And I think it's Whoa. going to be on the back of, yeah, I think it's going to be back on interest rates. And I am, I'm going to put this out there, Dan, over the next week and a half or two weeks, I think mm -hmm. you're going to see some hedge fund blow up on the back of their derivatives book being levered to, you know, being short options. And I think you're going to see that and you're going to start to see um, whiffs of that over the next week, week and a half on CNBC. I don't know who it is. I don't know how big the hedge fund is, but I think it will make news in the markets. How's that yeah, it, for you? Well, that's pure. I mean, you're not basing that on anything. It's just pure speculation. The only thing that no, I'm not basing back, it on anything. I'm no, just basing it on watching what's going on. So yeah. we've seen this. The only thing I push back. Before. Well, 
Yeah, let me push back a little bit on 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 a hedge fund blowing up on a short vol trade. I think that um, you know the GameStop situation in January probably alerted a lot of risk managers to kind of unnecessary or kind of silly asymmetric risks. So you know, hopefully, we've seen some risk tightened up a little bit. Um, one one question, guy, and and you know, you and I have been doing fast money together. I've been doing it with you for ten years or so. Um, you know, and and you. <laughs> You know, you say that I'm wrong a lot. I have so many people who hit me on the outside, as we say, you know what I mean, who are big, fast money fans. And they say, why is guy so hard on himself? Because I look at him and I say, he's right a lot more than he's wrong. Why, why do you do that, big guy? Just tell our, our macro setup audience here. It's dis in my opinion, it's really disingenuous to just point out the things. You're, it's more interesting for the audience, both on fast money, the macro setup, yeah. whatever we're doing. Yeah. To, to hear about the things we got wrong and to understand the reasons behind the things we got wrong. It's not for lack of work. It's not for being lazy or being complacent. Yeah. Sometimes the market has a way of humbling you. So, you know, we'll read a lot. I know you read a, you're a voracious reader. I try to read a lot as well. And I think I'm very well informed. And the comments I make, the decisions I make are predicated on the things that I read, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. And for the audience, it's not interesting to hear me say, oh, I got this one right, the pat on the back stuff. Yeah. That doesn't do anybody any good. I think it's more interesting for people to hear, I was wrong. These were the reasons I was wrong. I did the work, but the market has a way of humbling us. So I appreciate that comment, Dan. But to answer your question, that's the reason I do it. Well, I just think that, you know, being a market participant and also a market pundit, and you have a certain responsibility. And part of that is not about touting, let's just say, how great you are, this trade that won. Because we know as longtime traders... For every great trade you have, you probably have 10 mediocre trades that lost a little money or whatever. And if you're a good trader, you look to cut your losses, you know, when you're wrong and avoid some big losses. So I always, listen, guy, and I mean this very seriously, I always learn from your ability to kind of point out how you were wrong and why you were wrong and why you might be changing your opinion. And that's why I enjoy um, doing all this work with you. Let's let's go. Um, you know, we were talking about that rotation out of the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ, um, I think, had like a Today down five percent or so at the lows um, this morning. It's bounced back a little bit. Who knows where it's going to be when we print this sort of thing? Let's go to the big Kahuna. Let's go to Apple here because I think this chart. Forget talking about the fundamentals. Let's talk about the chart for a second here. You know, this stock in late January broke out to a new all-time high. It really been consolidated and had not confirmed any really of the new highs in the S and P five hundred that we had seen since November, which was really interesting. And it just spoke to that rotation. But then you saw that quip ramp into earnings. And then since the earnings, and the earnings were very good, um, the stock is down. I think it made a high of 145 or so. And today at the lows was trading 118. That is a significant um, decline. And I just want to point out some points in this chart. And then I want you to kind of speak to them a little bit. So I drew this horizontal line from the September 2nd high that was just below 140. It got rejected there in late December. Then it broke through, as I said, in January, but it was not able to do again in February. Then it broke its uptrend from its March closing low, which it held like a boss, as the kids say. And what's also mm -hmm. interesting about that uptrend was the 50-day moving average, which the stock had not been below since late November. So it broke that last week. And then what did we have yesterday? We had a big down day. And then today we had a gap below that 100-day moving average. Okay. And then you see the yellow line is the 200-day the, uh, down there at 112. I think it's really interesting to see a lot of people think 
think that technical analysis is a lot of mumbo jumbo. Again, we don't trade or come up with trades solely based on a chart or some sort of smoothing mechanism that, that, that a chart broke or something like that. But when you look at these levels and you look how precise this stuff is, it's really important to remember that whether you're trading futures on indices or individual securities or whatever it is, a lot of people base their entry and exit points and their stops on these technical indicators. That's why I think they're so important. Give it to me, baby. What do you think about these things? You're spot on. I mean, and, and look, you look at that and say, that's not really a double top. And you're right. I mean, in terms of levels, it's not exactly a double top, but it certainly looks that way. And, you know, that 145 level that we traded at in January with all the euphoria, you know, we've said this, you've said this on Fast Money for years, for all you people that bow at the, app, the altar of Apple and Apple's been so good to you and you're in love with Apple. You've seen a significant amount of peak to trough declines over the last four or five years. I mean, you've seen it over the last year and you're in the midst of one again. Apple typically over the course of 12 to 18 months will have a 30% move to the downside. And oh, by the way, we're on the precipice of something like that now. So you're asking, what's the entry point? Well, the entry point that makes a lot of sense is the 200-day moving average, sort of 112 or so, and that lines up yeah. really well. And the last time we were testing the 200-day moving average, oh, magically, it was basically a year ago um, in, in March. It, it just makes a lot of sense. Apple goes down faster than it goes up. You've seen moves like this before. You know, I'm not really interested how, how well Apple's treated you over the years. I, I will tell you categorically, that Apple could care less about you. People that get married to these things uh, typically get themselves in trouble. But you're coming up to a, a, a point where you should be getting in the stock, not out of the stock. And I think it's going to come in the form of that 112 level that Dan's outlined so well. Yeah, let's hit some stocks before we kind of go macro here, Guy, just real quickly, some other stocks. I just want to rip through this Microsoft chart that we have. And I think it's interesting that, you know, this thing had been holding on for dear life after a huge ramp off of its January lows, if you see that, and it had been making like a series of new highs last week. And then you saw this really bad break two days ago, right? And so I think it's interesting that yesterday it closed right at the breakout level um, from January. And then today it broke below. It found some support at 50-day. I just put Apple and Microsoft together combined they're the two largest stocks in the market uh, they're individually they're the two largest stocks combined they're about four trillion dollars in market cap kind of a different feel they were coming out of apple over the last few weeks and they were holding on to microsoft for dear life then you saw that break so that's a really interesting that kind of prior high that 232 level on microsoft let's go to tesla guy because this is one you know we talked about we've been we talk about this one a lot but this one is just that ultimate sentiment one, right? And so yesterday on its close, you saw it was down 8.5%. It was down 20% from its all-time highs made in late January. And I think it's really interesting that it broke that 50-day moving average yesterday morning on the opening, and it just went straight down, and it closed on the lows. That is really bad action there. And the last time this stock was below, its 50-day moving average was on November 16th, the day that the S&P 500, after the close, announced they were going to be adding it to the index. And you saw what happened. The stock, until its January 25th highs, gained 120%, $400 billion in market mm -hmm. cap. On the macro setup, we talked about it a lot. But look at that chart today, this morning. Where did that stock catch some support there? Right at to that the 100 penny. day. To, to the, the penny. penny, as they yeah. say, Dan. That's so the why great is, Why is Tesla... Work. 
if you're if you're listening to us right now, and let's just say you don't get so granular in individual stocks, why is Tesla, when it was an eight hundred billion dollar market cap company last week, um, you know, or last month, excuse me, up from you know a seventy billion dollar market cap company a year ago? Why is this important? Why should macro investors be paying attention to Tesla? I think it's I think that's a great question. I think it's become such a proxy, such a benchmark. You know, there are a few stocks that become proxies for the broader market. Obviously, Apple's one of those stocks. Yeah. I think to a certain extent, Google's one of those stocks, obviously Amazon. But Tesla has forced its way into that part of the conversation in a very meaningful way. So people look at Tesla as sort of a proxy, again, for not only the overall stock, but the Nasdaq specifically. So you start to give up the ghost here. And you wonder what the trickle-down effect has. I will say something about Tesla. Um, whether justified or not, and, and maybe he overplayed his hand, I have no idea. But that announcement that Tesla um, put some Bitcoin on the balance sheet, for whatever purposes they're going to use it for, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you wonder if they overplayed their hand there. And if they, they to use the word again, if now that's going to become a proxy stock for Bitcoin. Because I got to tell you something. I don't think that's really what he wants to tie his fortunes to. So. We're going to talk about micro strategies in a second, much different story. But you look at this and you say to yourself, wait, yeah. that looks shockingly like uh, the chart in Bitcoin over the last couple of days. And if Tesla's become sort of some sort of levered Bitcoin play, that's problematic. And although we did stop at the 50 day, you have to wonder if we're going to do that whole round trip and visit the 200 day, which I think comes in the form of about 450, 475. By the way, the last time we saw the 200 day in Tesla, was in March of last yeah. year. Yeah, and listen, we're talking about these names because I think they really speak to investor sentiment. When you see euphoric periods like this in financial markets, you see what, what we would call in the business style shift. You see a lot of guys or gals who are good at one thing start looking at another thing. And you could say that that was the ultimate style shift for Elon Musk to kind of say he's running Tesla, he's running SpaceX, he's got that flamethrower company, he's pretty active on Twitter, which looks like a full-time job for him, and now he's a Bitcoin evangelist, it seems kind of odd to me. So let's. that's a pocket, I think, of euphoria wrapped up in an enigma and, uh, you know, kind of surrounded by a riddle or something like that. Let's oh, look at yeah. this. Let's move to this because this is another pocket, I think, of euphoric sentiment, and that's SPACs. And these are special purpose acquisition corporations. Every day you're seeing um, SPACs that are run by some big name investors who raise capital in blank check, or blank check companies with the idea of bringing private companies to the public markets. Look at this one here, and I just want to show this. When these things are issued, um, they they basically come preloaded with their investors, and there's they're complicated structures. They're not that complicated, but they're complicated structures. They issued at ten, and they're not really supposed to trade up meaningfully until they announce the company that they're going to buy. Look at this one, this Churchill CCIV. It had been rumored that they were going to buy a, an EV company, electric vehicle company, and that's really the segue from Tesla here. Look at that thing. It was trading above 60 yesterday. This morning, they announced the deal. They're buying Lucid Motors, a, a phenomenal-looking car, and maybe it's a huge Tesla killer. Who knows? But that thing traded down for a whole host of reasons, down to 30. It balanced. It's trading around 40 right now. But again, it's just showing you the sort of speculative fervor we're seeing um, you know, in different products, in different parts of the market. And then I'm going to bring you guy right here to Microsoft. But real Strategy. quick, this is, yeah, this, this is a company that was a software company. It's been around for decades. Uh, Michael Saylor, the CEO, um, has basically turned this into a Bitcoin company. What is your take on this? I know you've interviewed the CEO. You've had a lot of comments about this on Fast Money. Is it a software company anymore? They've tapped the financial markets. They've raised equity to buy Bitcoin. They got a lot of Bitcoin. And it doesn't seem like they got a lot else going on here. 
Um, what is your take on this company right here? And what does it mean for the broad this market? Is, talked about it for a while. I mean, this is they have completely now levered their company. They put their fortunes, um, good or bad, in the hands of where Bitcoin trades up. So Michael Saylor doesn't seem to be bothered by it. And quite frankly, he's a visionary. He's a brilliant man. I've heard him speak. I've interviewed yeah. him, as you mentioned. I've read about him. So I'm not casting aspersions here, but to talk about micro strategies. And this is a company that basically, in terms of the stock, did nothing for eight years, uh, did a secondary offering, I believe, in November-ish, uh, bought Bitcoin with it, and you see the fates of the stock ever since. I mean, so when Bitcoin's effectively has gone from 20000 to 40000 at the time and doubled, you're talking about a stock that went up sixfold. And when Bitcoin now goes down 5 or 6%, this is a stock that can go down 20 25% in the same day. And, you know, they've become levered to the price of Bitcoin, which might be a great thing if Bitcoin does get to 20% of the market cap of gold another basically 100% from where we are now in terms of market cap. It could be a devastating thing if yeah. there's some regulation comes around it and the market flees from Bitcoin. But make no mistake, the fates of the company are now firmly in the hand of where Bitcoin trades. What does that mean for the broader market? Well, again, it just means more and more things are being pushed further and further out the risk curve. And it looks yeah. great when it's working. It looks devastating when it's not. Yeah, I, I would also add that it's like, why why would you invest in a company that's basically become a Bitcoin company? There's so many other things that can go wrong. You just mentioned the regulation. You can't regulate, let's say, Bitcoin itself. It's this kind of, um, you know, decentralized, immutable ledger, right, that lives, you know, somewhere in the on the internet, um, but you can regulate the, the sort of entities within certain domiciles and, and what they do with it. And so that's the risk to, to, to me that I see with MicroStrategy. And the other thing is, is that it's really easy to open a Coinbase account or a Gemini account or a Binance account and buy Bitcoin. Now, if you're an institution, now there's more ways to do that. There's more um, legitimate um, big banks that are, are willing to custody it for you. And then I guess, um, the last point I would make is that there's new uh, ETFs that are coming, you know, onto the market. So you'd rather do it just through a straight shot in ETF. All right. The last thing on the sentiment front, as we think about the stock market, and then we're going to move on to the macro stuff. Um, and obviously we're going to hit Bitcoin here. I just got to pull up this GameStop chart. You know, we obviously have talked about this a lot. We're not going to get into it right here. I just think it's really important to look at this year to date chart and people thinking this was a revolution or it was some sort of democratizing the financial services business or this and that or whatever. It it was not that. This was nothing other than a digital decentralized Ponzi scheme. It was one of the quickest in the digital age. It was to the tune of $20 billion. I don't think it achieved what people wanted it to achieve or what whatever. It might have achieved what a few people wanted to achieve, getting a big short squeeze in a Ponzi scheme going. But when you look at that, that, that to me, there's nothing other than nefarious acts involved in that. And let's let's put a button on that guy uh, on the GameStop thing. What's your take You know, as we kind of look to think that this thing is never coming back? Back, it's done. But what, what is your what does it mean to you about the stock market in 2021? What ups, what upsets me is when I read or hear from people on, on some of these websites that think that say to themselves, as long as we hold the line, as long as we yeah. hold the stock, it's going to go back up. And it's just so misguided. And I'm not suggesting everybody thinks that, but there are pockets of people who believe that. To me, that's devastating. The the bit the GameStop story. That portion of it is over. Now we're in the, the back half of it. In terms of the winners here, there's no doubt that some individual traders made a lot of money on GameStop, without question. But the real victorious people are probably a handful of hedge funds that were in some way behind this. I'm, again, nefarious, not nefarious, whatever it is. 
you're going to see results coming out of hedge funds you probably never heard of that had a huge month of January, February on the back of exactly this. And, you know, I think there were a lot of people pulling the strings and I think there are many chapters left to be written. But in terms of the stock, I wouldn't be surprised to see it start, it finished where it started. And that probably comes in the form of $12 or so a share. All right. Well, listen, on the macro level, we got to start with Bitcoin because I think it's really kind of encompassing a lot of narratives. I tweeted this over the weekend and I thought this was really interesting because Coinbase, which is obviously the largest uh, crypto exchange, you probably, a lot of you guys know about it. They're preparing for a direct listing to IPO the stock. In anticipation of that, they've done a bunch of private sales to kind of test the waters for the valuation. And I thought this was really interesting because I was reading this from Dan Primack from over at Axios and he was talking about the levels of these private shares. Uh, sales in the last month, 200, 300, and near 400. This is all in the last month. And when I look at that from a valuation standpoint, the way it's ticking up price-wise, I look at the Bitcoin year-to-date chart, and it doesn't look too different. When you think about the low in Bitcoin was 28,000 this year, and then you see it go from you know 30 to 40,000 or 45,000, up basically 50%. And then at its highs, near 58,000, it was up about 100%. If you look at the Bitcoin chart, it was doing basically the same thing. Let's look at that year-to-date chart, but what has happened in the last week or so since we got just above 58,000 over the weekend, we've seen it correct here. So to me, you know, that breakout level was about 42,000. That might be in the offing. We know that we've seen a bounce from the lows. The Bitcoin five-year chart, this is one we've talked about a bit on the macro setup here. You know, you had that retail frenzy in late 2017, where it went from 10,000 to 20,000. It doubled in about a month. And then we saw just a crash, right? And then it was in this kind of purgatory 2019, it picked up again. But then at the end of, uh, you know, uh, 2000, or excuse me, during the pandemic, it was very correlated to a lot of other risk assets in February and March, it got cut in half. So this is going to lead us to your dollar conversation guy, because you saw that Mm -hmm. 10,000 move, you know, up to nearly 60,000. Let's go to the Dixie. Let's talk about it. You've been bearish of the dollar. It is a broad macro theme. You have been correct. You won't say you're correct because that's not what you do. We already talked about that, but you have a lot of reasons why the dollar is going lower and you've been on it for the last year. Let's look at the one year. Let's look at the 10 year. Let's broaden it out a little bit and then let's get to rates. Well, this is the one I think, as important as rates are, I think people don't understand the importance of the U.S. dollar. And obviously, we're in a significant downtrend. It did bounce, and you you were on top of that bounce. But here we are back at the Dixie, sort of at this 90 level. And if you're asking me where I think it goes, I think it continues to grind lower. I think this chart speaks to it. You're going to get bounces along the way. I think the bounces are shorter and shorter lived. Everything, every time Jerome Powell opens his mouth or some Fed official speaks, it's negative for the U.S. dollar. Anything that comes out of Congress in terms of a stimulus plan, whatever term you want to use, is negative for the dollar. And I think, by the way, that's part of the plan, whether they realize it or not. A weaker dollar really works when you're indebted as much as we are. But guess what, folks? A weaker dollar, by definition, is inflationary. And we throw everything on top of it, supply chains breaking down and those types of things. The situation you're seeing in Texas, I mean, just think about it. So This dollar trade is far from over. The commodities trade on the back of it is far from over. We're going to talk about gold in a minute. But I think that at a certain point, people say how bullish it is for the stock market when the dollar goes lower. That is true. But just like rates, you're going to get to that line of demarcation. And we're precariously close to it. In terms of the dollar or the Dixie that we have up there, it probably comes in the form of 88 or so. And I know that's a ways away, Dan, but I think we could see it sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, let's go to the 10-year chart of the Dixie because I think this is really, um, it, it does a couple things. You know, it, you said it's kind of what the Fed had in mind, and this goes back to kind of zero interest rate policy and QE, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis. Look at initially you had that big move higher in the Dixie, and then you saw from its highs in 2010 to its lows in 2011, which was you know, somewhere near 73 or something like that, or 72, 70, you saw a massive decline. And don't think for a second that that was a big, you know, that was one of the things that the Fed at the time was hoping to do to reflate our economy. Um, look at this 10-year chart, though. If I draw that that range, right, from the 2010 high, then you get that breakout in 2014, which really established a new range, right, above that kind of 87, 88 level, you see mm -hmm. the lows in 2018. And then you see now we're kind of getting back that 90 level is a really near term. It's a really important support level. But if you get down below there, do you see a break of that massive support level going back to the high in 10, the lows in 18? Are we going back to the mid to low 80s in the near term in the Dixie? Oh, I want to say near term over the next year or so. Yeah, that's what I think. I think absolutely that that is absolutely what I think. I've thought it for a while, and I thought yeah. it was going to sort of coincide with rates going higher. Which you know, I use the term, and you can make fun of me, but I think that's a witch's brew. Higher rates, yeah. lower dollar. That's just double the inflationary pressures that you're feeling. Listen, we have to live in this environment. Rates going higher is not is not particularly bullish if you're trying to survive on the inflation front, and your dollar going lower by definition, is inflationary. Your buying power goes down. So if you're living in the real world, not in the world of the central bankers, this is not an encouraging sight. And when 73% of the economy is driven by the consumer, you know, again, I know the pent-up demand story, I get it, but people are going to be strapped on the back of this and it's going to have a very negative effect. So be careful Guy. what you wish for in terms of a weaker dollar because we're going to get there. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. You better be careful sounding like this because those those coiners, those crypto people, you know, the ones with the laser eyes on Twitter, that sort of thing, you are going to become the like their, their crypto Jesus here. You are speaking their language. You basically made the case why you want to own Bitcoin. That is their case over time. And it's just not only the U.S. Federal Reserve, it's, it's every you know central bank on the planet wants to kind of deflate their currency. Let's go to yields here. You've been spot on, um, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I, to be very frank and, and you and I talk every day, either on the things like this macro setup or podcast fast money. I don't remember, you know, you thinking that rates were rising as they were getting killed back in uh, a year ago during the throes of the pandemic. But I know you've been steadfast for the last six to nine months um, that we probably hit a bottom in August. So here we are. We held that uptrend from 53 bips um, very nicely. We just exploded off of it at 1%, right, in the last few weeks here. And it looks like there's been a little bit of a pause. Who knows? We'll know in the next couple of days at those one-year highs near 1.4% in the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield. What's your take on it very near term? Do you see resistance there? And would you, like, you know, I, I suspect you would reload if we were on our way back to 1% in the near term, which is that uptrend. And what would take us back there, I guess? If you could kind of help the viewer understand what would break us out and what might take us back to 1%, which I suspect it would hold that uptrend. Yeah, as ironic as this is going to sound, what takes us back to 1% might come in the form of a flight to quality if the stock market were to sell off. And I know now I'm sort of all over the map, but if you think about it, we've seen that before. If you see a significant sell-off or a prolonged sell-off in equity markets, you're going to see a flight to quality in the form of bond yields lower, 
and maybe the dollar higher. Um, both those will be short-lived, in my opinion, and both those will be buying opportunities in terms of yields going back higher and selling opportunities in terms of the dollar going back lower. So to answer your question, I think what could take us back down there is a market sell-off. Now, the other side of it is maybe we're overdone. Maybe bonds have sold up too much and maybe too many people are talking about them. So maybe we do level off here, trade back into the 1.25 level or so. That would make sense. We're going to go to a little longer term chart and you can see exactly where things should go to. And that's in the form of one and a half percent. It was a low in 2012. It was a low in 2016. Past uh, support becomes resistance and we're right up against it or close to it now. So if you're looking for sort of a broader outlook, it comes in the form of those uh, two horizontal lines that Dan Nathan drew for you folks. So this is a fascinating chart to me, and I know we only got a couple minutes left here, Guy, but when I look at this and I look at the times in 12, 16, as you mentioned, um, both instances that every genius pundit, you know, whether it be on uh, financial TV or Twitter or whatever, were saying those are generational lows. We will never break them, right? And so we saw massive rises. We saw, you know, the 10-year yield go from one and a half to 3%. Then we saw, you know, saw that happen twice. So here we are, we have this black swan event in the form of the pandemic. We break that that low again, that one four, one five level. And here we are again. You know, I suspect that one five would be a level where we sell off from. And I also think, and I know you feel this way, um, that alarm bells might go start to go off on a lot of other risk assets. And I just want to take us to the 30-year chart. We'll end this conversation on yields. And you look at this, it's the upper left to the bottom right. And you look at that resistance level that we're talking about, um, those prior lows, and you say to yourself, okay, if we get through one five here in the next few weeks or whatever it is, the likelihood of it getting meaningfully over that downtrend is not great. One of the reasons for that is that we have 15 trillion in negative yielding debt all over the world that's down from about 9 trillion. And we have every country in the world just kind of devaluing their currency we talked about, and they're working on massive deficits. So the fact of the matter is, is like rates you know, may stay low forever. They may never meaningfully go up and you might see the reflation uh, or the inflation of things like Bitcoin and more and more things like that. You're seeing it hard assets all over the place. You know, do you even know what an NFT is, guy? It's trending every day on the Twitter, these non-fungible um, things. They're digital art and they're like, they're like in the crypto universe and they're trading like at ridiculous levels. People want to own anything that they think is scarce right now. Well, you know, it also is scarce is our time. So we got to quickly look at the goal. And you're right. This downtrend will hold up, Dan. And I yeah, do think yeah. um, you're 100% right. But in the meantime, things are looking a little hairy. And you, now we're going to finish up with gold. Yeah. And I'm looking at it. And again, if you had asked me six months ago, you'd outline everything that's going to happen. You say, guy, where's gold going to be? I would say well north of the all-time high of 2,400. If not, um, or excuse me. Well, yeah, I think that was the all time high was a little north of 2000. I'm sorry, but yeah, we'd be yeah. closer to 3000 or so. And here we are languishing at 1800. You drew the horizontal line. So we have held support. Uh, but I do think we take out that downward trend that you drew. Now, I happen to think that rising rates have actually held gold down. But again, the same thing's going to happen. You get to a point where that flips and maybe that switch for everything is one and a half percent. And no, by the way, uh, bring the dollar into that conversation, and maybe that switch for gold is 88 in the DXY. I think the other thing that's held gold back, obviously, has been the rise in Bitcoin. But if Bitcoin were to fall into a bit of a, a tailspin here, I think gold's going to find its footing again. So if you ask me, 
I think this is more a buying level for gold than a selling level. You know what, guy? You were Bitcoin served as like a nice rug. If we're going to do a Lebowski res, re, reference, it kind of tied the whole room together for this conversation. The macro setup that was awesome, man. It was really fun to go back and forth on this stuff. So thank you. I enjoyed it. I always enjoy bantering with you. I loved, you know, the help we get from the people at Open Exchange in the form of Mike Cavino and Brendan Bresci. Yeah. Tremendous job behind the glass, as they say. This has been the macro setup brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and Dan? Knockouts. Damn straight. See you next week.